Please rise for the reading of God's word from Obadiah, verses 15 through 16. Hear now God's word. For the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may recall that as I started this series a few weeks ago on the book of Obadiah, I said that one of the reasons I did it was because I had never heard sermons on the book of Obadiah, and second, because it was short. It's uh, the shortest book in the the Old Testament, and uh, 21 verses, but that doesn't mean that it's not cram-packed and full. And so we've already seen a great story here, the story of Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers who... Who, who actually fought one another in the womb. And we know as their story unfolds through history, the descendants of Jacob and Esau uh, are going to uh, emerge as countries. In this particular case, we have Judah and we have Edom. And uh, remember the word Edom comes uh, from the word red, and it has to do with uh, uh, Esau and the red stew that he had. And so it apparently was his nickname. And so the Edomites are a nation, and the story here, of course, is that Babylon has now uh, taken captive. They have sacked Jerusalem, and they're taking captive uh, uh, Judah and hauling them off and, and looting their, their material goods. And Edom, which is supposed to be a brother, stands by and watches. Edom is located in in the middle of the trade routes. They're wealthy. They're perched high in the mountains. They have a lot of political power. They have many allies, they think. And so here they are, rather than coming to the defense of their brother, are actually opposing him and helping destroy Judah. So God has a certain dealing with his people, Judah. He is bringing some... Trials and judgment upon them, ultimately to redeem them. But now Edom, God is also bringing judgment upon for their wicked treatment of their brother. And so we've seen so far that the arrogance of Edom led them to ask this question, who will bring me down to the ground? Again, we have to have that geographical context of them high in the mountains, overlording uh, the trade routes and so forth. And so God accepts their challenge And he assured them in verse 4, Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says Yahweh. This is always the case with the proud. We could take quite a bit of time, but I just want to give a few samples, three here from the book of Proverbs. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So the Edomites are guilty of all of these things. And then in Proverbs 15.25, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. It's a general blanket kind of statement. And in chapter 16, verse 5 of Proverbs Everyone proud in heart 
is an abomination to the Lord, though they, though they join forces, none will go unpunished. We see in this story the nations around Edom, their allies and so forth, have joined forces with Babylon to take advantage of Judah. And then in Proverbs 21.4, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. And so pride, as, as is true for all of us, is kind of that mother sin of all the other sins, but it's at the core of the problem here. Moreover, the Lord says, says that the judgment on Edom would be complete. And now remember, they depended upon four things. Their wealth, their allies, they, their friends, those who they had entered into covenant and treaties with, their wisdom, their wise men, their military leaders, and so forth, as well as their might. That All of that there in the text that we've already covered. None of these things, God says, would be able to avert His coming judgment upon them. Who can stand against the Lord? We should remember when the forces of evil seem strong, when they appear to be as Goliaths, as David says, the battle is the Lord's. That should reassure us. Or as Romans 8.31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now we need to be careful with that. Throughout history, many people have claimed they were on God's side. And that can be a very boastful and arrogant claim in and of itself. And so great caution has to be exercised here in making that sort of assertion and claim. Nevertheless, it is is certainly true, it is a universal truth, that if God is against you, you're in trouble. You're going to lose. I mentioned this uh, Wednesday night uh, just as a slight, uh, kind of a similar illustration. I was working, reading a book about using my wood lathe. And uh, the guy says, now, the lathe might only be a half a horsepower, but a half a horse is still stronger than a whole man. So if you have a challenge, if you try to challenge the motor, you will lose. Well, God is always stronger than men. And so, in verses 10 through 14, Obadiah, of, of, of Obadiah, God brings his specific indictment against Edom. We saw that a couple of weeks ago for their mistreatment of their brothers and for having been complicit with the Babylonians in 587 B.C. when they defeated Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Every time we join forces with a culture that is opposed to the people of God, even in our own day, we are acting like Edomites. We are, at the very least, when we do that, undermining our church, our family, our schools, or certainly the Lord himself. And so while the people of God are feeling defeated right now, certainly they are by the Babylonians, the Edomites are strutting. They're taking advantage of the circumstance. They're going to cash in. And so what assurance do the people of Judah have that the judgment will ultimately come upon the Edomites? Because we're tempted to certainly be discouraged by evil and overcome by it, but we must remember where our strength comes from. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, we read this, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to all the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And so we come now to verses 15 and 16 that we just read, where God is still speaking to the Edomites, but also knows that his people are listening in, as it were. Think of, again, a Shakespearean play where there's a scene going on and a conversation, and over behind the curtain is someone, and those who are having the conversation don't realize they're there, but they're overhearing everything, the plot, if you will, and they know what's going on. So that's kind of the picture we have here. And so as God speaks to the Edomites, he's actually speaking for the Israelites, for Judah, And the Lord reassures them that he will intervene in history and that justice shall prevail. He is the judge of all the earth. Now, we're not going to take the time this morning to develop a philosophy of history here, except to say that the Christian view of history simply stated is God God started history, God controls history, and God will end history. History is his story. And we're going to see that unfold here. We see it unfold in many other places. This is not just random uh, molecules bumping into each other through the centuries and and some kind of a pinball game. There's real meaning. There's real purpose. Something is going on in this grand story. And so the Lord assures them. For the day of Yahweh upon all the nations is near. The world is going to be made right. You see, God rules the cosmos, which means that he rules the nations and the kings. They think they're in charge. They think they're all powerful. But God always has a day of reckoning. I'm reminded of, I'm not sure who said it, but uh, basically when you make all your battle plans and you're ready for the battle to begin, after the first shot is fired, all of your plans are now obsolete. Everything's changed. But there's always that strong sense of assurance on the front end. But God always has a day of reckoning. Daniel, in the face of possible death, said this to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. History is full of such reckonings. The so-called ash heap of history is full of once proud people, but out of the midst of those ashes, God resurrects His people. He ra- uh, Psalm 11, excuse me, Psalm 113, verse 7. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap. As Edom has done to Judah, so now God says it's going to be done to you. They drank during, uh, drank and reveled at the fall of Jerusalem. And now God is going to force them to drink and drink and drink until they collapse. Here, have another, he says. Edom, along with the other nations, are going to get what they deserve. By the way, in the end, 
Everyone gets what they deserve unless they are in Christ, in which case he gets what we deserve and we get what he deserves. That's the beauty of the gospel of grace. Ill-deserved favor. But there is always justice in the end. The text says, for the day of Yahweh upon all the nations is near. You'll remember that in Obadiah there are two uses of the word day. The first was the day of Edom's sin, which was a day of distress for God's people, the the, the things that Edom did to Judah. God's people, like Jesus himself, are persecuted and mistreated often. And there should be no surprise there. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. But then there's always, but then there's this second day. It always comes. Mentioned in verse 8 and now described in more detail, which is the day of Yahweh, and that day will be a day of distress for Edom. Every story, again, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's the end of the story that ultimately matters most. Now the word the, when in this reference to the day of, of Yahweh, means doesn't mean that there's only one day of Yahweh. This is a phrase that's used, uh, used or referred to many times in the Old Testament. It's usually spoken of both in the near sense as well as a future sense. The phrase refers to an event where the Lord will intervene in a dramatic way and in a decisive way in judgment. To set the account straight, if you will, to make things right. He will punish the guilty, overthrow the existing powers, and rescue and restore the faithful. Therefore, when Obadiah says the day of Yahweh upon all the nations is near, he's not saying that this is the ultimate end of the world. Rather, he's saying that God is about to reverse things and set them right. And when he does that, it's going to impact all the nations. A realignment, if you will. Of course, there will be a final day of the Lord at the return of Christ. All other days of the Lord point to this final day of the Lord. All of the little ones point to the great one. That's actually true with many things in the Bible. It's true of marriages, which is to point to Christ and His church. It was true of the tabernacle, which was to point to the ultimate tabernacle in glory. The one that will come down in the new heavens and the new earth. There are many things that are repeated throughout history, themes and ideas that tell kind of the same story of fall and redemption. So, for example, the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. was also called the day of the Lord. So it was God's step to execute justice, but more would still be needed. The fall of Jerusalem, as we've already referred to in 587 B.C., was also the day of the Lord. It too executed justice, but more would still be needed. The judgment of the Edomites was the day of the Lord. More justice. Remember what Malachi says about this very day in Malachi 1, 3 through 5. But Esau, that's Edom, right? Esau I've hated and laid waste to his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. 
your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so it goes repeatedly throughout history. We have tons of evidence to support this idea. Our history books are full of the rise and the fall of nations. As a result, no one can say they weren't fairly warned. There have been even more dramatic days of the Lord. For example, the cross and the resurrection of Christ. The day of Pentecost and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. or A.D. 70. But there still remains a final day of the Lord. And that is yet to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-4 For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when the people say, peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Romans 2, verse 5 and verse 16, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 16, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The text tells us here in Obadiah that it will be upon all nations. I mentioned previously that the nations are mentioned four times in the book of Obadiah. In verses 1 and 2, they are spectators of God's judgment, but now they are going to become the objects of that judgment. There is universal accountability to God for all men in all times and in all places. And there is, as Hebrews says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So back to Obadiah, our text says, as you have done, so it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your head. So fundamental justice requires lex talionis, the principle of the law of retaliation that a punishment inflicted should correspond in degree and kind to the offense of the wrongdoer, or as we would say in common language, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Retributive justice. And so proud Edom is about to be humbled, about to be brought down, The pillagers will now be pillaged. The gazers will now be seen by all. The persecutors of survivors will have no survivors. Edom, who cut off God's people, will be cut off themselves. What goes around comes around. Ezekiel 35, verse 15, speaks of this situation. As you rejoice because the inheritance of the house of Israel is desolate, he's speaking to Edom here. He says, you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate. So I will do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir. Remember, Mount Seir is the main mountain in Edom, as well as all of Edom, all of it. Then they shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so there is no injustice with God. May it never be. And so the Edomites are only receiving 
what they deserve. Now, verse 16 says, For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. Just as the Edomites lifted their glasses in celebration over the demise of their brothers, so now God is going to make all the nations, including Edom, drink and drink and drink until they are staggering drunk and sick. They're going to have a hangover they will never forget. God's holy mountain refers to Jerusalem, which was the location of the temple. They had all desecrated God's holy place of worship, and now their party is about to be over. All sins that are persisted in, in this way, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, regret, Vengeance is mine, the Lord says, and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand. Sometimes when when you talk about these things, people think, well, that's harsh. That's really hard. Why are you talking? The Bible is full of this kind of talk. I want you to think about it. We have all kinds of injustice in the world. Is there no recompense? Is there no day of reckoning? Is all the injustice, is all the... The meanness is all the evil that we see around us. Is all of that just meaningless? If if Darwin is right, then yes. If the Bible is true, then no. That's why these things have to be thought through. Ideas have consequences. All the sins persisted in, in this way. Notice it says that they will be as though they had never been. Just as God can make something out of nothing. Let there be light and there was light. So too he can make nothing out of somethings. You can watch all the national or personal pomp and circumstance, all the self-reliance and boasting. But when God moves to execute justice and set things right, He has no trouble clearing the stage. We should remember that the story, there's an arch uh, uh, story, a big story, and then lots of little stories that retell this over and over and over. We should remember that the story never really changes. It applies to entire nations and to individuals. Because there is always a payday because the sovereign Lord is in charge. Moses spoke to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben. And here's what he said in Numbers 32, verses 20 through 23. If you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sins will find you out. There's always a payday. We have been called out, uh, called to to an all-out loyalty 
to the King of Kings. I realize much of the world thinks this is absolute foolishness. Paul says, you know, if I'm wrong about this, then I, above all men, am to be most pitied. Then it's a waste of time. What we're doing here is a waste of time. Reading your Bible is a waste of time. It's all a waste of time. It doesn't mean anything. And he's right. If. But if not, the opposite is true. Even when things appear to be not to be going our way, even when God himself is testing us or chastening us, even when it appears that our enemies have the upper hand, we must remember that the story isn't over yet. I'm convinced that's why God's given us so many stories. And we get to see the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. We get to see the blessings. We get to see the judgments. We get to see the story not once, not twice, but over and over and over and over and over. And the story always ends the same way. We're supposed to pay attention. The big story isn't over yet. So this morning, when we close our service, we'll have a closing hymn from Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The opening line, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. And then the verse that we'll sing today has these lines. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. O Lord, You're the Almighty and the Everlasting King, and we're blessed and grateful to be called Your people. Help us never to lose sight of this fact and to entrust ourselves into Your hands, for You are a just God who can't be moved. Thank You for sending Your Son, our Savior, to bear Your just judgment on our behalf and to gain us the victory. We pray in His name. Amen. First John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so God has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies, right there in front of them. The battle rages all around us and even within us. But God says, come and have a seat. Let's eat first. You're going to need your strength to go out and to fight. Moreover, he calls us to joy, which is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So let me ask you this morning, how joyful are you? Look, I know in any given week there are struggles, there are tears, there are Lots of those. But if we come to this point, as we begin a new week, as we look back at the last week, if there wasn't a fair amount of joy, then we're doing something wrong. And so, if there hadn't been quite enough joy, then you must need more of Jesus. Why do you think he gave us bread and wine? I'm reading a book right now that I really, really like called The Spirituality of Wine. 
really made me think deeply about the world that God put us in. I want to read two passages of Scripture before we come to the table. Two short ones about wine and bread. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, and 8. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. Speaking of God, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that He might bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make His face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. Here we have bread and wine and oil in the bread. And God gave it to us. It's simple. It's beautiful. And if we receive it for what it is and what it's for, not only physical nourishment, but spiritual nourishment. You see, we believe all things visible and invisible. And there are many things in this world that have this kind of surface meaning, bread and wine. But the Creator gives them deeper meaning. And if we'll see that and understand that, there's a deeper knowledge. So bread and wine become something more than simply bread and wine. They become this sacrament. This place where we remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So let us eat. And let us drink with joy. O Lord, teach us to be resigned to your will, to delight in your law, to have no will but yours, to believe that everything you do is for our good. Help us to leave our concerns in your hands, for you have power over evil, and bring from it an infinite progression of good until all your purposes are fulfilled. Bless us with Abraham's faith that staggers not at promises through unbelief. May we not instruct you in our troubles, but glorify you in our trials. Give us the confidence we ought to have in him who is worthy to be praised and who is blessed forevermore. Bless now this Lord's Day that we might know its joy and blessing, the fellowship of the saints, the blessing of your bounty, the delight of your food, and the rest that is only in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all the peoples, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Amen. Amen.